Six o'clock, it's time for Toward a Meaningful Life with Simon Jacobson, the show for skeptics and seekers. Rabbi Jacobson, best-selling author and director of the Meaningful Life Center in New York, is here live in the studio. Join us every Sunday night from 6 until 7. And now here's your host, Mike Fader. Hi, this is Mike Fader. I'm here with Simon Jacobson. And um, we uh, first of all, I want to mention that today's tonight's show is going to be on Kabbalah, on Kabbalah. But first, before we do tonight's program, let me just say that uh, we got some response and uh, the topic for last week, men and women or battle of the sexes is such a powerful, complex subject that uh, we want to do a part two. So after tonight's show, the week after the next one is going to be battle of the sexes part two. And uh, so we want you to think about that and send us some emails. I'll give you the email address later with your questions for this program. And also uh, write the phone number down here at EVD because we want you to call up on this subject, Battle of the Sexes and uh, Men and Women. The number is 212-244-1050. That's 212-244-1050. Those are the listener call-in lines to get your questions ready for that. And tonight we're going to talk about Kabbalah. Um, Here's my initial question, and I'm, I don't know anything about this, so I'm sitting here and just going to learn about it. The question is, what is Kabbalah, and what's the history and the origin of it? And uh, let me just throw in an ancillary question, which is, what is mysticism, if that helps uh, answer the question? Well, definitely. Um, Kabbalah has become a very intriguing topic of late. I see it's just ex accelerating, and uh, in the media interest, you hear about the different celebrities involved with Kabbalah, so it's definitely a subject that I, in my travels and uh, classes and places where I speak, people are very intrigued, and the word Kabbalah itself can draw a, uh, a considerable larger crowd to any discussion. And I've been wondering why that's the case. Is it because of its exotic nature, the mysterious Kabbalah is associated with you know, school of mysticism, the secrets, the unknown secrets are suddenly being opened up, or for some other reason, which I think we can explore as well in this, uh, this, uh, this show. But I think your question is the most appropriate to begin from the beginning. You know, what exactly is Kabbalah? What does it mean? Its roots, its, its origins, and, uh, and perhaps even um, compare it to when we talk about mysticism in general, and most people's attitude, what is mysticism? So, Kabbalah is a word in Hebrew, which uh, means, literally, reception. That's what the word Kabbalah means, to receive. Reception. Uh, what it's referring to, it's referring to the reception of uh, students from teachers in a long, unbroken chain of a of the what's called esoteric dimension or the esoteric teachings of Jewish mysticism. The most classical text of Kabbalah known to most people is the Zohar, authored by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who uh, lived approximately 2,000 years ago. But Kabbalistic texts exist throughout the ages. There's even the first original, considered to be the one of the, or perhaps the first uh, Kabbalistic text, is called the Sefer Yitzir, the Book of Formation. Some attribute that to Abraham. Abraham wrote. Uh, there's even a book called Raziel Hamalach, which is talking about an angel called Raziel. And some attribute that to Adam. So you see, Kabbalah is something that goes back 
the beginnings of, of history, beginnings of time. And uh, uh, it's been always taught only from student to, to from teacher to student, never really in a formal way. Which we'll also discuss what exactly are the conditions in the study. But let me describe the Kabbalah itself. And that really links into what is mysticism. So to use the Zohar's analogy, I think it's appropriate in this, cl- in this show to uh, use metaphors and analogies from Kabbalistic texts themselves. That will also be some form of like an educational experience, yeah? Journey. The Zohar says that everything in this universe has body and soul, including the teachings of Torah. So the body of Torah, there's the body of Torah, there's the soul of Torah. Um, you can compare it to the body and spirit of anything. You know, the body of a book is, are the words, the physical paper, but the spirit is between the lines, the soul of it. So in essence, the Torah has the body of Torah would be the legal, the legal Talmudic um, dimension. It tells you how, what the laws are. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, keep the Sabbath, eating kosher, Passover, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. So there's a body of law. That's called the body of Torah. The soul of Torah is, doesn't discuss how to do it, but why you do it. What cosmic impact it has, what personal impact, what spiritual impact. So essentially it's the spiritual dimension that when fused together with the body part, create one entire whole. The Kabbalah is in essence the study of that spirit, of that inner dimension that corresponds to every aspect that exists on the exoteric, so there's a parallel in the esoteric. On the external, there's something in the internal. And um, uh, in that context, Kabbalah is not something that is some new creation or some new study. It really is part and parcel of what Torah is all about. However, there are, uh, so to speak, limitations, or I would rather put it as some type of uh, a specific criteria of how one studies the Kabbalah because of its spiritual nature it makes it more difficult to master and more difficult to relate to and there's a famous line that they usually say about Kabbalah is that those that know don't say and those that say don't know so it's because you're dealing with a very subtle um, sublime dimension of things it does, it's not the same as when you're dealing with things on a very legal uh, law level commandment level See, thou shalt not steal is pretty obvious. Everyone understands that. But the Kabbalistic dimension gets into what the implications are, what spiritual, so to speak, damage is created when a person does steal. Besides the ethical elements, something deeper. Does it put the universe out of whack in some way? How does it affect the relationship between two people? So so Kabbalah deals with a much more complex area as complex as le- the legalities are, it gets much more complicated when you're dealing with the sublime, which is more than visible. So, is that sort of what me then? Something like so put it in context of the word mysticism. I, I I don't know how mysticism is translated in other schools of thought. You know, each has their own interpretation. But the Kabbalah, in one way, is what I just described as the soul of the Torah. I would add one thing, and this perhaps is something that makes it a little more universal and uh, can parallel more with uh, mysticism in general, the Kabbalah, in a sense, is also uh, the building blocks, the DNA, the spiritual DNA of the universe. Understanding the Kabbalistic system, in a way, is understanding the matter, the stuff of which existence is made of. The 
because the Kabbalah does discuss the inner workings. So if a scientist or physicist may give us the the the, physis, the physicist's map of the universe, and a chemist would give us the chemical map, and a biologist would give us the biological map, a Kabbalist, a mystic, would give us the mystical map. It means that for everything in existence there is also a counterpart, so to speak, a spiritual counterpart. I'll just use the classical example. Fire and water, two of the most basic elements. So in the Kabbalistic system, there are building blocks, and we'll discuss this a little further down, when we, what, what exactly the Kabbalah teaches. The building blocks of, of existence, of universe, consists of ten spheres, ten components. With, um, and these ten are much, much more complicated than just ten, because the ten multiply many times over. But for instance, when you say water, water is the physical manifestation of a spiritual counterpart called chesed, which is love. So there's an element of metaphor in understanding Kabbalah. Beyond metaphor, it's more than metaphor. It's like the soul of water is love. The soul of fire is discipline, fear. That's why, and that is also explains the reason the color is blue and red. Uh, each color has a corresponding, um, corresponding dimension. And essentially the Kabbalah is like giving us a deeper internal map of existence, of phenomenon, of, of experiences around us. So when you talk about Kabbalah, I should also add that it's hard to quantify because the Kabbalah itself has many schools of thought. I'm talking about its origins. What I mean by that is, and I could break it down into several categories. There is, we'll call it um, uh, biblical Kabbalah. For instance, the Zohar is structured around the portions in the Torah. So the Torah has 52 portions. The Zohar has, has a section on each of those portions. So it, it essentially gives you the, the Kabbalistic interpretation of biblical stories. But there's another part of the Kabbalah which would be categorized as philosophical Kabbalah. An example of that would be Rabbi Moshe Kardavira, the Ramak. He was a contemporary of the Holy Arizal in the 16th century. And he wrote a book, one of his classic works is called Pardis, which means the garden. And he discusses the, the philosophical dimension of Kabbalah. He explains its, uh, how it deals with the issues of God's unity, of good and evil, um, the philosophical dimensions. And then there's a part of the Kabbalah which is very um, very technical. It's almost the, it's the... It's the what they call the kavana, the inner intention of what a person should think about when they pray. The inner meditations, how each prayer, whether it's the Shema prayer or another prayer, has a deeper meaning behind it. So you see here, I just gave you three different, so to speak, not different, not necessarily um, conflicting, but different schools of thought within the Kabbalah, biblical Kabbalah, which can be called like classical Kabbalah, philosophical Kabbalah. And then uh, applied Kabbalah, which is connected to how to pray and, and how you do a mitzvah, what you should think about, what you should meditate on when you give someone charity, things of that nature on that personal level. And then there's a final category called Kabbalah Mises, which, is, uh, which really means uh, Kabbalah in action, in literal terms, but it's applied Kabbalah in the sense where people used uh, the, mis the mysterious names of God and different amulets and different, uh, so to speak, to perform, I don't call it magic, but to just to suspend the laws of nature. When they say that, for example, that the Maral of Prague built the golem. Build the golem, build that uh, dummy. Go golem being? The dummy, that's what a golem means. They took from dust, he, he, it's a famous uh, tra uh, story that in Prague, he lived in Prague, 
the morale of Prague, and he built a golem, which is he took dust from the ground and created this, um, so to speak, Frankenstein. But not a monster, but someone that protected the Jews at that time. Is that is a so there's an element of quote-unquote magic involved in this one. Um, well, that is the area of Kabbalah that is most to be avoided because, first of all, do we have anyone that really masters that? Uh, it can be very much abused. And, I, and it's an area that I'd rather not even discuss because I know so little about. As I said earlier, those that know say, don't say, and those that say don't know. So I'm in the category of if I say anything, it would clearly point out that I don't know anything. So I'd rather when not... When it comes to the magical aspects. So right. And, and, and also, know, uh, as I said, if a holy person knows how to use that, that's one thing. But the rest of us, it becomes a little um, more sensational than real. So you have to really avoid, I don't want to avoid the sensational part of it. Um, so essentially, Kabbalah is a very wide and vast body of work. You could spend your life studying this every day, right? right. A wide, vast b- body of work that goes back thousands of years. And different areas of Kabbalah touch upon different areas of interpretation, as I described. Just to give, just give me one more minute, and I'll just give a, let's call it, uh, for those uh, listeners that are academically inclined or are, famili- or are interested in knowing some of the books involved. As I said, the Sefer Yitzhir is considered to be the first work, or the Raziel Hamalach that I mentioned earlier. Obviously, the Zohar is the classical work of Kabbalah, which is, uh, which is uh, written in around uh, close to 2,000 years ago. This is Z-O-H-A-R. Z-O-H- Z-O-H-A-R, right. Yeah sometimes called the Holy Zohar. But there are other books that follow the Zohar, for example, the Sefer HaBahir. It's called the Bahir. Bahir means the Book of Illumination. By the way, Zohar also means illumination. Often the names of Kabbalistic books are very much connected to light. Light, illumination. First of all, light is one of the metaphors used for the divine expression. Um, now, uh, after the Sefer HaBahir, there's a book called the Sefer Hatmuna, which is the Book of Portrait. That's what it means, Book of Portraits. Again, the visual concept, the Sefer Hakana. Then, of course, Nachmanides was a famous Kabbalist. I'm just going through the, uh, through this, through the centuries. And then, one of the most classical of, of, of Jewish Kabbalists is Isaac Luria, who was in the 16th century. His name was Yitzchak, um, Isaac Luria, Yitzchak, uh, the Arizal, sometimes as he's called, the Holy Arizal, who, who lived in Tzfat, northern part of Israel, and he was, is considered to be the preeminent, we'll call, I can't call him modern, but as far as the next, last, last 500 years, the authority on Kabbalah. In a sense, it passed on through him, considered to be a holy man, a mystic, and interestingly, his students were some of the greatest Jewish leaders, the people who codified Jewish law, Joseph Caro, his contemporaries. And Isaac Luria was the one that really um, revealed dimensions of Kabbalah that were hitherto unknown, particularly in the area of understanding the cosmic dimension, how God creates a universe, how a human being interacts with God. Some of the class of the classical concept that the, that the Holy Ari revealed was, was called the concept of Tzimtzum. Tzimtzum means contraction of light, where he gave an analogy to understand how an infinite God creates a finite universe, and how do you bridge the gap of such two dichotomous or antithetical, like heaven and earth, he gave, he gave, explains it with the concept of a tzimtzum. Tzimtzum is similar to a student, a teacher, who has to contract and condense his, what's called, brilliant ideas in order to allow a, st- a small stream, a narrow stream of information to flow to the student. 
So that's a, ma- a metaphor used to understand this, uh, th- this type of relationship. Now, the stream of light th- only condenses it. It by no means compromises it, because formation lies all the intelligence and brilliance of the you teacher. Have to, you have to decode it. After that, right, right, decode it and, and climb the ladder. Just using an example, that's Darizal. Darizal had many students, and they continued to perpetuate the teachings, and they became more and more known. As a matter of fact, Darizal had a famous student was named Chaim Vital who really was the one that wrote down all the teachings that he heard from his great master. Um, it's interesting to note that Darizal only lived till age 36, and most of his teachings took place in the last few years of his life, two or three years or less. So Rav Chaim Vital continued perpetuating these teachings, and as uh, the generations passed, which is the last 500 years, in a sense the birth of the Hasidic movement, when we talk about the Hasidim, the Rebus, the Baal Shem Tov, in a sense, is in a continuation of the Kabbalistic tradition, the Hasidic dimension in it, but it continued to perpetuate what is considered to be the inner dimension, the esoteric dimension of Torah thought. And this is uh, central and eastern Europe that this developed in. Right, yeah. developed, and uh, in essence, it's seen today by uh, by 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 Torah authorities and Jewish authorities that though Kabbalah has to be studied in a restricted way. Um, mm-hmm. I want to ask you some yeah. questions about that later. Yeah. yeah. Yet, yet the certain elements that of Hasidic thought, based on Kabbalah, are a necessity today to survive in, in a world that is so materialistic. As we see today, the turn towards spirituality. Uh, it's difficult to just demand and ask of many young people to just follow dogmatically and blindly rules and laws. The, 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 it sometimes requires the esoteric dimension, the spiritual dimension. What this does for Anushama, for the soul, and even for people who are completely dedicated to tradition, uh, though Kabbalah itself perhaps is not what should be studied, but elements of it that are gleaned and are discussed in Hasidic teachings are considered to be a mandatory study because it uh, helps a person uh, connect their, uh, called Judaism, their commitment, their traditions to God and to having a personal relationship with God. Um, I think this is a brief overview, as brief as one can be in, a, in a describing an entire study That's of work. It's concentrating a, a lot of material. Yeah, it would be like you'd ask me, what is medicine? I just want you to understand <laughs> that if someone didn't know what medicine was, how do you capture it? So medicine, obviously, is the study of the body and how it works, but medicine has many, many schools of thought. You have to deal with neurology, and there's, there's um, the circulatory system, and you know the, all that. And the same with Kabbalah. Kabbalah is the study of the soul, to sum it up. It's the study of the soul. Which, which is in everything, then, right? Exactly. The human soul within the human being and within existence. And, and essentially, as complex as the study of the body is, the study of the soul is, is equally complex, if not more so, because of its sublime and invisible nature. You can't study a soul in the sense you can't put it under a uh, microscope. Let's uh, take a break. And this is such uh, concentrated information that it, it sends you reeling. Also, it sends in my mind a lot of questions to ask. So, uh, Please. Let's, uh, we'll take a quick break here. You're listening to, uh, to Toward a Meaningful Life with Simon Jacobson, and I'm Mike Fader. Uh, this is WEVD in New York, 1050 AM. We are here every Sunday night at 6 PM. And tonight's subject is the Kabbalah, or Kabbalah. And we will be back in just a moment to ask a few more questions, to get some more explanations from Rabbi Jacobson about this. Uh, let me just give you the telephone number where you can uh, ask questions and make comments. Uh, it's 1-800-3-MEANING, 1-800-3-MEANING, or 1-800-363-2646. We also have 
um, an email, of course, and you can email us at wisdomreb, wisdomreb at AOL.com. Um, let's just plunge right back into this because it is so, it's so fascinating to me. I just want to like tumble in with these questions. Uh, one or two questions just to sort of uh, anchor it maybe factually. I was uh, looking in this tome I have, the Oxford Dictionary of Religions or Encyclopedia of Religions, it's suggested or implied, and this may be totally wrong, I mean, every article in there doesn't have to be right, that there might be some other influences that are not just exclusively Jewish influences in the Kabbalah, that there is like a maybe interaction of various mystical traditions, perhaps even Christian or Eastern, that have got involved in this. Because the truth is that a lot of what you were explaining sounds very much like the core and the essence of a lot of major religions in the world. Where there's a soul and a force which infuses everything. Well just to start us off on a new... No, okay. Yeah. Um, my response to that would be that, uh, first of all, Judaism in general is uh, quite an ancient religion and tradition. And the other um, the other major religions, either, either directly or indirectly, uh, state that they follow Judaism. Christianity and Islam particularly, both historically in time, but also their basis is at first there was the prophet Moses and so on and so forth. So they're clearly, so I would I would say that perhaps they were influenced by Jewish thought rather than to say that they influenced Jewish thought, because Jewish thought preceded that. Oh. And I'm not, and I'm not uh, um, pulling rank here, but the fact is that uh, Islam and Christianity came as I came later. But Eastern religions, there's any nexus um, there? That's my next. Uh, oh, so yeah. regarding Eastern religions. Interestingly, and I'm not trying to be uh, monopolize anything, but the fact is the Bible says the following statement, that Abraham uh, sent some of his students to the east and sent them with many gifts. And it's th the consensus is the gifts was wisdom. And you've heard the expression Brahmin, mm -hmm. Brahmins. Mm -hmm. uh, many attribute that to Abraham, Abraham. Is that like a, uh, an actual word root there? That's uh, yes, definitely, because uh, Abraham, the source of Abraham, even in Islam you say Ibrahim. Ibrahim. Yeah. Ibrahim. So Brahmin is very much connected to, to huh. Abraham, and it's associated with that. Now, this by no means is, is trying to suggest that, uh, that, um, that there's no legitimacy to any of the other systems, but I frankly see parallels between different mystical systems as a tribute that there are certain eternal truths that are ingrained in our system. You know, you, Mike, may never have studied any type of mysticism, yet there's certain truths you may have come to through your experience in uh, either good experiences or painful ones. Just by being a human being. Right, exactly. And the fact that you meet someone somewhere who says, you know, that's a very mystical concept or idea, just to, just from my point of view, just to, to, to testifies to the truth, that truth resonates. And you will find it in many different places, sometimes through individual search, sometimes in a more formal way. I would say the Kabbalah is a formal is a formal um, text and and uh, scho uh, scholarly work that documents it all, and but many much of it does exist, and you will find parallels in other systems. And I and I I would even I wouldn't be my, my my style is not to go ahead and make comparisons, who's better or whatever. The point is that it, truth is truth, and it resonates, and. Um, the similarity is that the universe is not just a material machine, but there's a spirit behind it. It's obviously universal to all, to all schools of thought, uh, spiritual schools of thought, re religious schools of thought, and that's great. I mean, that, that why would one try to 
and say one influences the other. That's a basic. Now, regarding the actual uh, discussion itself, how that soul is understood, you will find differences in different schools of mysticism. But the Kabbalah is a very self-contained system and doesn't really depend upon or uh, lean on other systems. It has, it has its own rules and it's its own approach. And I would rather leave that to the student to compare and say, okay, how does that compare to other schools of thought? Speaking of which, since you mentioned a good answer to that question, um, since you mentioned student, um, you said before, and I think maybe everything you've just said sort of answers this question already, but I'll ask it again, that this is the kind of thing that's traditionally studied person to person. In other words, this is taught by a master to a student, to use a certain word, or a teacher to a student. This is not the kind of thing that you get a whole bunch of people in the classroom or an auditorium and just lecture them like in a university. Now, why is this? Okay, very good. I think that's a very good Um as I mentioned earlier as well, Kabbalah means reception. And it's interesting that a, stu a, a mystical uh, study or esoteric uh, scholarship should be called reception. Now, why? W there are seemingly other names that you can give it. Um, but I think there's an inherent, inherent component that's in the word reception that really captures the power of Kabbalah. And that is that it's not just an academic study of facts. It really is an experience, more than a study. An experience, as we know, cannot be passed on through fax machines and computers and books alone. Or lectures. Right. You need the human touch. So it's not incidental. You know, some, some systems, it's incidental. The only way that a student can really study, they need to have a teacher. Kabbalah, it's inherent that Kabbalah be studied, teacher to student, because that teacher knows the between the lines, the spirit, the experience. So it's almost like a guide that's teaching you how to live it, not just how to understand it. Kabbalah is much more about living than about understanding. That's why the Kabbalists were also very careful who they whom they taught, because they didn't want it to become a detached from a person's life. So you the most, in other words, the most vulgar thing, the most abusive thing for a Kabbalist would be if someone studies it and behaves in contrary to what they studied. In other words, personal refinement goes hand in hand. So a student, and this is the same in other traditions, has to sort of prove that they're truly interested and sincere before they'd be accepted. Right, right exactly. And, uh, and, that's, and, and, that would, and that's the only way that that student would be worthy. Uh, so that's one concept, the idea of that, so to speak, chain of student to teacher, human experience that's passed on, that goes beyond words, that you can't just document on paper. As an additional point I would say uh, is that the Kabbalah also means the the state of mind that you have to be in when you're studying it is not of a arrogant ego person who's a master. Ah, you have to feel like you're receptive, right? You have to feel like you're a receptacle. And interestingly, that would lead to the final point I want to make, which is that essentially the Kabbalah is meant to teach us how we all become receptors. That we are really here on earth to be a channel for higher truths. See, most of us, or all of us, initially in our lives, we're self-contained individuals with an ego, and our main agenda is to take care of ourselves. So essentially, you're here to serve yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, the Kabbalah, one of its primary teachings is, no, you're not here to serve yourself. You're here on a mission to serve a higher cause. And your personality, your talents, your strengths, your unique uh, faculties are really all channels for something greater and higher. Now, creative people talk about this a lot, about being a channel for a higher wisdom. And I just, you know, I allow, I allow it to travel through my arm, my a lot hand. Of, a lot of writers say that right, they right. take dictation rather than think of it themselves. Right. 
So that's a parallel. That's a system. But in the Kabbalah, it's more comprehensive that all your life is dedicated to that. You sit down at a meal. You walk in the street. You're running your business. So even if you're not a Kabbalist, but the, the men- message of Kabbalah is that you're here to be a channel. You're not just here to sustain yourself, to make money, to eat, indulge, have fun. You're here to be a channel, a receptacle, Kabbalah, to be receiving something to be like almost an open container to receive something greater and it should be channeled through you into this world and in some way transform your little corner. That is in essence uh, one of the most important relevant messages of the Kabbalah to each of us. So in that context you understand why it's so critical to be taught in the right environment or else it lends itself to, as I mentioned earlier, to exotic sensationalism. You know, the fact is I've always found it interesting how people ask me often about palm reading, fortune telling, you know, seeing the future, stars, astrology, uh, dreams, interpretation, reincarnation. You know, these to- these topics, you name them all, most people perk up. Why? And I always wondered why. Is it because they're so academic? Or is it simply... I would mean that most people perk up because it's exotic. It's exotica. It's unknown. It's the curiosity that each of us has in the area that's unknown. That's That's a part of it. Another part of it is in some way, if it's not tr- tr- dealt with maturely, it's almost like a a distraction, like a cop-out. That if you knew that you l- were uh, a frog in a previous lifetime or something else, it almost like explains your life. Or if you knew your future destiny, it almost fr- it frees you of responsibility in a way. So you'd be fatalistic and you wouldn't uh, aspire to anything higher or change. Yeah. Or and unfortunately, uh, uh, really fortunately, Life is not that way. We were empowered with free will. It may not be wise for you to know your destiny and exactly what will happen in the future or where you come from, what you were in previous lives. If that knowledge helps you be a better person and live your life in a more responsible way, it's one thing. But I would tend to think that many people, when they know that, does not necessarily make them more responsible. It's, it's a flight into, into a world that is like exotic, unknown. As I heard once, one of the people asked, a person once asked a Rebbe, he said to interpret some of his dreams. So the Rebbe said, you know, we have enough problems, I have enough problems figuring out what to do when I'm awake before I get into dreams. <laughs> now there's much about dream interpretation and part of this is Kabbalistic. In the Kabbalah? In the Kabbalah, definitely. And, um, and you find it even in the Bible with Joseph interpreting the dreams. It's a, it's a certain language. It's a l- secret language of the soul, of the psyche. You think Freud picked some of this up? From, uh Freud definitely, underst- uh, uh, I don't know if he, he studied any Kabbalah, but he definitely looked into those books. You see some of his Moses. And the thing I wanted to say was that, that, uh, that even though there's much about astrology and the stars and the powers of the cosmos, but it's, it has to be carefully taught, or else it becomes a, 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 a compensates. So wait a minute, you're saying it there replaces is that in the Kabbalah. There yes, is that. but it's not taught by any true authority. Will not just teach it easily because he he or she will risk will, will the the fact that people may abuse it by you know by just that curiosity of like liking to know what my future holds, what my palm reads, rather than really assuming responsibility. So it's really a mature study that can only come and, and is coupled with a very mature attitude that this does not replace, does not compensate for, is not an alternative to real hard choices in life. So the study of the Kabbalah is not for, really, for children or young people, really? Uh, children mean not just chronologically, it can be even for a child that's an adult. Meaning, it requires a mature approach to life. Number one is that you've taken hold of your own life, your control of it, your choices are refined, you've, you've shown responsibility. 
for someone who has not really assumed responsibility for their lives in a very serious way, if they... It becomes a, a, a compensates. So wait a minute, you're saying it there replaces. is that in the Kabbalah. There yes, is but it's not taught by any true authority. Will not just teach it easily because he he or she will risk will, will the the fact that people may abuse it by you know by just that curiosity of like liking to know what my future holds, what my palm reads, rather than really assuming responsibility. So it's really a mature study that can only come and, and is coupled with a very mature attitude. That this does not replace, does not compensate for, is not an alternative to real hard choices in life. So the study of the Kabbalah is not for, really, for children or young people, really? Uh, children mean not just chronologically. It can be even for a child that's an adult, meaning it requires a mature approach to life. Number one is that you've taken hold of your own life, your control of it. Your choices are refined. You've, you've shown responsibility. For some, they assume responsibility for their lives in a very serious way. If they go to a true Kabbalist, he will he won't laugh, but he will not teach them any Kabbalah. It comes it's it has to be earned. You it's, know, uh, it's like entering. <coughs> uh, often in the in the Talmud, the metaphor of an ecstatic experience is entering the garden. You can't just enter the garden easily. There's a famous story in the Talmud where four people entered the garden, which meant they went into a an ecstatic state, a state of ecstasy, mystical spiritual ecstasy, and three of them did not survive, did not come out intact. One, and they were great men, great, great, great sages. One came out mad, insane. One died. One became an apostate because he completely got confused and he could not relate to certain things he witnessed and experienced. And Rabbi Akiva, the only one, says, went in peace and came out in peace. And you see, a person has to earn certain journeys in life. If you don't earn it, then you go there you, and you, you come back. It's not really you. You can't internalize it. I don't want to compare it, but it's similar to having a, a high through an alternative foreign substance. You haven't really earned, you, you like almost jump-started something that you haven't really earned to enter there. So you see things that you either don't appreciate or don't know what to do with once you go back to your life. That's why there's burnout. You, you know, know, you can't ground it. You can't internalize it. Kabbalah is not, uh, God forbid, a drug, but in a similar way, it's an experience that, that is of a greater nature, a certain awesomeness. You have to be receptive to it. You have to be ready to receive it. You have to also be mature enough to say, you know, I've heard enough. I'm, I'll, I'll, I, I, I don't want to jump in. I'll stop here for a little while. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a question of growth. and um, You know, it's, it's interesting to me you used the word burnout before. In every religious tradition that I've ever heard of, um, people who are not prepared, uh, and that's most of us, if they see the quote-unquote face of God in any religious tradition or brought too close to the great profound meaning of something, it often either kills them or blinds them. I mean, these are, these are experiences that are written about in every major um, religious tradition. Yeah. You've got to be ready for it, you know. Right. So that's why the Talmud will say, the Mishnah will say, that the study of the Maisa Merkava, which means 
the vision of the chariot, which is the vision, one of the Kabbalistic visions in the Bible, you find Ezekiel, the prophet, had a vision. And he saw a chariot with four faces and describes it in detail. It's a lot of Kabbalistic metaphor, essentially, that's understood only by the uh, only in, within Kabbalah. And um, that study of the Maeser Makov is not meant to be studied except individually, not in groups, because a group tends to um, dehumanize, in a way, depersonalize the message. And it's good for scholarship, but it's not good for experience. Experience is always individual. So the experience gets diluted too right. much. That's why these things are not studied individually. They have to be, st- uh, I'm sorry, they're not studied in groups, but rather individually, teacher to student, face to face, very personal type of um, journey. So people, there are people now then who are studying Kabbalah as we speak. There are people out there in the world studying this, right? Yeah, I can't speak for everybody because some people may be studying it, which means they, they, they may be thinking they're studying Kabbalah. It doesn't mean it's Kabbalah. You mean they might be reading a book someplace? In yeah, they may, it may even be an authentic text, but uh, not necessarily that they appreciate or understand what they're reading. Now, I'm not, I'm not here to judge anyone or to uh, pass uh, judgment on any school of thought. I think there are inherent is an inherent immune system in the Kabbalah. As I said, those that really know don't say, and those that say don't really know. So does that mean that every teacher doesn't know? If he says everything, then he probably doesn't. If it's too sensational, t- too commercial, there are certain things that are signs that usually there's something wrong. It's a very, the real mystics in history, very humble people, would be the first to say, I, know, I don't know why you're coming to me, type of, the real masters. Um, so as soon as you see that it's uh, more of a sensationalistic thing, a uh, publicity thing, a celebrity. But you started out the program saying that it's become very popular and almost like a fad. What, what is that all about? I, I just made it as a statement. I didn't say it in a positive or a negative light. But it From is my the point truth. Well, yeah, that's a fact. That you can't argue. My, my attitude to that is, as I often stated, whether for good or for bad, the fact is it brings it to the fore, attention. It's a good opportunity to use to get people thinking and get them to fully understand it. Uh, clearly, uh, whenever anything is on that type of popular level, there's always going to be distortions, and that, uh, it has to be that way. Be, uh, I c- I again, I, I'm not here to speak on any individual, about any particular individual or particular school of thought, but I think there are certain questions that anyone studying Kabbalah should ask uh, or interested of the teacher. Number one is this receptivity. Who did you receive from? In other words, what's Who the Who is your teacher, right? Yeah. Who you humbly sat before. Hmm. Without that, it, this isn't a, an ego trip. This isn't an individual's creation. This has to be... Uh, it, it, uh, Kabbalah is not owned by any individual. It can't be sold by any individual. There's no monopoly, no royalties. It's a wisdom that is inherent in existence, part of God's creation, and therefore cannot be, uh, as I said, monopolized by any individual. In addition, the humility of the teacher is critical what kind of humility that teacher has, what modesty they carry. So though there may be people who know the information, you know, doesn't mean necessarily that they are Kabbalists, what I would call a Kabbalist. The Kabbalist is not just a knower of information. It's a true receptacle, a true humble teacher, who uh, actually a humble student, who simply allows himself to be a channel for that type of wisdom. So the teacher is always a student? Always, mm-hmm. always. As a matter of fact, in Hebrew... The word for a true teacher, Talmud Chacham, means the student of a wise person. You don't call him a wise man. You say the student, Talmud Chacham, the student, the disciple now of you the wise. Now, presumably, of course, now you studied this with someone. 
Well, that depends whether you consider me a Kabbalist or a knowledge of Kabbalah. Well, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I didn't make any <laughs> such claim. Um, I think it's a good topic to discuss a show about. Um, I would not categorize myself as a Kabbalist, honestly. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that I'm familiar with Kabbalah, and I can tell you that I studied it and read it and um, did have a master, particularly the uh, Menachem Mendel Shnei, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Shnei, called the Rabbi, who was clearly a mystic and Kabbalist. But if you looked at how he taught, he never really sat down and taught Kabbalah. It was always integrated within a system of life, how to live your life. If you would ask him, are you teaching Kabbalah? He'd say, no, no, he's not teaching Kabbalah. He's teaching you how to live your life. But within that was weaved Kabbalistic teachings. So, so in that context, I can say I was, I studied Kabbalah. But um, out of curiosity, I've read the books and I'm familiar with the body of, of work. But I would not call myself a Kabbalist. In other words, if someone came to you and said, I'd like to study that with you, you really wouldn't. I would invite them to my Wednesday night class where I try to weave it in as well. Um, and, uh, but I would not like to call a class on Kabbalah. Now, if someone calls it that, that, that there's Kabbalistic teachings being taught there, that's fine with me. But, uh, you know, if you ask me what Kabbalah is, it's far beyond... Uh, now, th- in this book of yours, Toward a Meaningful Life, upon which this sh- radio show is based, um, and just to mention this book, is called Toward a Meaningful Life and uh, by Simon Jacobson, and it is published by Morrow, and you can go out and read a, buy it and read a copy of it. Uh, would you say that there are some Kabbalistic teachings that have found their way generally? Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, it, it may not be overt because I stayed away from using in generally prohibitive language uh, Hebrew or for that matter anything too esoteric because I wanted to make it more accessible uh, but there definitely there's particularly a chapter on God and a chapter on unity that are very, uh, ba- very I would even call them an introduction to Kabbalah I'm big into introductions I could say I can give a good introduction to Kabbalah whether I can teach Kabbalah or not is another story well, but introduction to Kabbalah may be more valuable than even studying Kabbalah because it's appreciating what uh, what the system this is. What what the you know, for instance, I mentioned earlier the building blocks, the idea of the ten spheres, the four worlds. It's a fascinating uh, map that Kabbalah draws of life, and it, and it helps make sense of our lives, and help understand deeper forces at work in our lives. This brings up a sort of an obvious question since we're talking about studying things. Is this exclusively uh, available? Uh, well, available is a funny word, but I mean, do you have to be Jewish to study Kabbalah? I mean, if you are truly seeking and you're ready, could you come from any tradition? It's a difficult question to answer because I have to go back to what the Kabbalah means. I remember someone once at my class who was a traditional Jewish person said, how could you be teaching any Kabbalistic concepts? You know, in this class. There's, there are prohibitions not to teach it to, to people under 40 and other certain restrictions that I mentioned earlier. So I responded by saying, every morning we say in the prayer, in the Jewish prayer, in the liturgy, Moda'ani, we acknowledge to God for returning my soul to me. So if your five-year-old child asks you, what is this thing, my soul? Would you tell your child, you can't study that till you're 40 years old? Obviously not, it's ridiculous. A soul is something we carry from birth, before birth. It's part of our lives. To give children a spiritual education doesn't mean you're making them into Kabbalists. So I have to qualify. Your question is a good question, but I want to s- split it into two. I think that if most people knew the basics of spirituality today, that's really what's missing, not the Kabbalistic teachings per se. Kabbalah is already a more intense study once you've accepted there's a soul and there's a God and you have a relationship with that God. 
I believe when I meet people today, people are missing the basic element of spirituality altogether. That's not even Kabbalah. You don't even need Kabbalah for that. Uh, you can say, obviously, it stems from Kabbalah, but it's like the ABCs. It's the first thing. That you, know, you know, you don't even go further. Kabbalah is once you know that, is how do you pray to God? How do you build that relationships? So I, I look at it like almost like, let's take love as an example. Today, we're, we're just trying to establish a relationship that works, let alone a deeper exploration of it. Kabbalah is the deeper ex- exploration. So when you ask me the question, I would answer this. This is how I would respond. Yes, that, that universal dimension that all of us need, the basic principles, fundamentals of spirituality in our lives, that part of Kabbalah is for everyone. And should be taught and should be encouraged because it's the key to being a, a productive human being, a responsible human being, a spiritual human being, transcendental one. Uh, regarding the deeper dimension, the deeper exploration, there there are prohibitions and limitations, and that would be case by case, depending on whom. There are great uh, non-Jewish leaders in the history. Balaam was an example, was a prophet. He clearly had knowledge of Kabbalah. So it's not an exclusively Jewish study, but on the other hand, uh, even among Jews themselves, there are limitations. It's not like anyone can just study it. So really, what we're talking about, the basic elements of spirituality are for everyone. The deeper exploration depends on the individual, where they're at, and what they're doing. Well, um, you know, it's interesting uh, growing up in what's uh, considered a conservative, you know, conservative Jews, reformed Jews, uh, where perhaps millions of American Jews were brought up in this tradition. I, have never, I had never even heard that word my entire life until I was studying religions in college. I mean, I was not brought up to even know that word or that tradition. I had a student, a student, he's older than I am, but he came to one of my classes. He said to me that until he came to this class, he never knew that Jews believe there's a soul. I mean, this This is not a joke. He, he never heard the word soul. The first time he heard it was in Buddhism as a teenager. Mm-hmm. He didn't hear it in the bar mitzvah. He didn't hear it in his Hebrew school classes. I don't mean the word. Of course, he heard the word soul, but it was never used. It was never a, a an element in, in the experience. It wasn't like, okay, we're now, this is an ashama, a soul experience. You know, we're now going to, it was always very technical, very traditional, and, you know, just do it, that type of thing. And God was more, you fear God, God. If you don't do it, God will do this or do that. Mm-hmm. I remember that part. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. so unfortunately, uh, uh, with such a rich tradition of spir- a spiritual system in Judaism, many, many Jews today are finding, the, are finding their spirituality elsewhere. Because what they were taught in schools is exactly the way you described it. It was a very dry, hollow, not non-resonating experience. And the soul look, searches for nourishment. If it doesn't find it in its own backyard, it will look elsewhere. You know, you've mentioned uh, your class several times this evening, and uh, you mentioned it last week, too. I'm wondering uh, if people are interested. Should they call up and... Uh, they can just know? come. We can tell them where it is. Why don't you... Uh, um, everyone's invited to the Wednesday night class in New York City. Uh, every Wednesday night at 8.30 p.m. It's at 441 West End Avenue, corner 81st Street. On the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Okay. You sound like you're an Upper West Sider. I might be. Yes. <laughs> You're so proud. Um, <laughs> but uh, but we don't, uh, but uh, there's no discrimination. Anyone from Upper East Side, Lower East Side, Lower West Side. And any background, any tradition. Exactly. Okay. It's a very eclectic group, and I think most people would find it quite interesting. It's so very it open. Like and uh, as opposed to radio, you can, uh, you can directly argue, and you can't be hung up on there. <laughs> <laughs> so remember that now. <laughs> so this is t- tell tell the people again where it is in the at four forty one West End Avenue, corner eighty first street. Every Wednesday, eight thirty p.m. Okay. Um, 
Well, you know what? We're uh, coming in toward or near the end of the show, which is never a mystery in its own way. It ends after uh, 56 minutes after it begins. Um, I wanted to take another break before we uh, have some final comments or questions. Uh, you have, you are listening. You were listening, and you will continue to listen. We hope to toward a meaningful life with Simon Jacobson, and this is Mike Fader. This is WEVD in New York, 10:50 a.m. And let me give you some ways you can get in touch with uh, Rabbi Jacobson for questions, comments. Uh, we have a telephone number: 1-800-3-MEANING, and that's 1-800-363-2646. We have our email, which is wisdomreb, wisdomreb at aol.com. And never forget, we have our website. This is the modern world. And that's www.meaningfullife.com. www.meaningfullife.com. And uh, is, is the, the website is under construction all the time. Is there anything? I mean, we know that we can download. You can, people can download transcripts of the radio programs. But is yeah, there anything? We'll soon announce something. It's uh, getting yes. very exciting. It'll be much more diverse and have much more to offer. All right. Then. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So we uh, and now speaking of. Um, spe oh, by the way, I, I want to never want to end these programs without mentioning one of the most important things is that we have underwriters. We have people who support these programs. And the underwriter for tonight, the person who has brought this show to you, in essence, is Richard Blackstone. And uh, thank you very much to Mr. Blackstone for doing that, for helping I us. And I second that, Mr. Blackstone. I uh, really appreciate all his work and uh, supporting what we're doing here. Now, um, I should also say that, uh, speaking of underwriting and helping to support all the work and the work of the Meaningful Life Center and the work that Simon Jacobson do, uh, does, we have received many requests from people asking how they can donate to the Meaningful Life Center, which, of course, brings you this radio show every week. The Meaningful Life Center is a nonprofit organization dedicated to bringing a sense of peace, light, inspiration, and meaning into the world. All its activities are made possible by donations of people like you who are listening to us right now, people who receive the center's publications and tapes, who listen to this program and visit our website. When you contribute to the Meaningful Life Center, you become, in effect, a partner in a way, a partner in the work that Simon Jacobson is doing. So we ask you, we're asking you to consider funding these radio programs. It's a great opportunity uh, to perhaps honor someone you love or to bring meaningful inspiration uh, to thousands of people when, you, when they hear these programs. You can dedicate a program, for instance, to the memory of a loved one, uh, someone's birthday or wedding, any other occasion. And believe me, we really do need your help. Uh, we want people to feel like they're part of this and to help bring this radio uh, show to people. A uh, donation of any amount, anything from a dollar, we'll accept $100,000, but anything is appreciated. Uh, you can call, in fact, right after our uh, program tonight at 1-800-3-MEANING. That's 1-800-363-2646. There are people standing by right now, and they can take your pledges of support. And when you pledge, when you help us out, Make sure to ask uh, to receive our newsletter, which is called Meanings. And remember, finally, we don't have commercial sponsors here. We like to bring you as much important information as possible without being interrupted by commercial sponsors, so we count on you to make this show possible. Um, I think that does it as far as our business right here. Now, we have just a few minutes left. Uh, the Kabbalah being such a, a complex, profound, and difficult thing, and you just give us a, the briefest sort of description of it tonight, and you say it's a concentrated thing which has to be decoded. 
Yeah, and I ask you this question so many times in the end of the program. We, the people who don't study it, the people who are living our lives, who are going to take the subway home tonight or, or who are going to go someplace or wake up tomorrow morning and go to work, how, what does this thing that we're talking about tonight, this great thousand, two thousand year old body of wisdom, perhaps old as uh, human beings themselves, what can it do for us now, for people who are listening to this show and for me sitting here, what can we take with it? Uh, take with us, you know, uh, into the world. I'm not going to study it tomorrow, the next day or something. Um, these shows that we're doing here, Mike, including t tonight and the shows that will follow, in a way, have many Kabbalistic roots. Because some of the teachings that I uh, that I've been steeped in and that I base some of the discussions we carry on are Kabbalistic in nature, uh, elements of Kabbalah, and particularly the spiritual dimensions of our discussions. Um, I intend, I think, that we will dedicate many shows to different topics that are Kabbalistic. I believe we should, in a few weeks from now, perhaps, dedicate a show to reincarnation. Oh, you mentioned that earlier, too. Yeah, reincarnation. We should do that soon. Then. Yeah. Yes. Um, afterlife. Now, topics that people struggle with, that deal with death, life, and uh, not in a sensational way, but really in a meaningful way. Um, but to answer your question, I think I'd like to reiterate or perhaps rephrase something I said earlier. The Kabbalah's main teaching is that we're not alone in this world. And we are channels for higher energy. Each of us has something to contribute that's unique. We're on a mission. And we are receptacles, as I mentioned. Receptacles to use our talents, our strengths, our unique opportunities to um, reveal a deeper spiritual dimension in everything we do. In a sense, to spiritualize the material world we live in. That means from when we take a bite, the next bite in our mouths. Food, it's not just uh, a sus a, an act of sustenance or indulgence, but rather a spiritual act. As Kabbalah will teach, there are spiritual sparks in that food. So every single thing we do, day in and day out, on a daily basis, yeah, is a sacred act. In a way. Exactly. One of the Kabbalistic teachings is that this concept of redeeming or the redemption of the, the elevation of the sparks. Seeing the sparks being cluttered or you can say not cluttered uh, spread, scattered all over the place. Every time you meet a person, a new person or someone that you know, there's a spark to be rede revealed or redeemed in that experience. Every time you eat something, every time you travel somewhere. And recognizing that, I think first of all, unbelievably changes and more gratifying way of how we live our lives. There are no random things. Wherever you, wherever you go, whatever you do, there's a spark there for you to bond with, for you to connect with. Uh, in addition to that, it also gives a sense of urgency, a sense of purpose to things that we do. It's not just, okay, whether, you know, it doesn't make a difference if I uh, move this way or I act that way. Or I can waste a few hours. Right. Every little act has, takes the world for a spin, so to speak. Cosmic spin. In addition, another Kabbalistic teaching is that the human being is a small universe. So, you know, today we live in a world where quantity and quality have ceased to be uh, compartmentalized. We understand that a little quantity can change major quality. You know, one dot in a computer program can wreak havoc. One mutation of a cell, God forbid. A butterfly effect. One little uh, vi uh, vibration in one corner of the world can cause who knows what. So we understand today that uh, matter and energy are interchangeable. This is essential Kabbalah teaching, that matter can be converted into energy, that 
even a small little act of kindness changes the world in some way. The fact that we don't always see it is because we're small people ourselves. Our vision is myopic, is narrow. But there's big, deeper things going on. And it's also a way of looking at uh, the world around you, including your experiences, and seeing it through and seeing that there's a bigger picture emerging. So Kabbalah in the biggest sense, and I, as I say, stated earlier, Kabbalah coupled with, fused with the entire body of tradition, the body and the soul create a full, a full dimensional experience. You, know, you can have, a person can keep a tradition or do, a, do something, uh, follow a law, but if they don't respect the spirit in it, or they don't have the spirit, they're missing an important dimension. On the other hand, Kabbalah alone, spirit, without the actualization in a concrete act, act deed, in, in, in turn is only a spiritual experience and doesn't really make an impact on this world, and it's not sufficient. So I would encourage people to continue listening to the show and to pursue in other ways. They can look, look at our website and the links to really ex- explore the fascinating treasure and journey, which is the Kabbalah and uh, Kabbalah in context of all of Judaism and all of tradition, the universal me- message that we are here on a mission and we are here to fuse body and soul. Thank you very much. Toward a Meaningful Life has been sponsored by VHH. 